When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey. This is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we talk a lot about voting. So we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as always. We also have Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Ari Berman, who is a senior reporter with Mother Jones. And then we have Faz Shakir, who is the national political director of the ACLU. Before we jump into this episode, I'll just say a brief comment about what power looks like. Is that what I'm mindful of is that there are many ways to build power. We build power in the street, at the dinner table, in the classroom, at the boardroom. We also build power at the ballot box. And there's not just one way to build power. I worry that I've heard so much rhetoric that's like, I'm not going to vote because that's not the way to build power. It's like the reality is that there's no one way to build power. There are many ways that we build power. And we need to make sure that we use every tool in our toolkit. And that is one of the reasons why you vote. You vote as another way to build power. And I think about power as the ability to influence a decision-making process. And politics is the decision-making process. And you want to make sure that you can push on that process as much as possible. That the people who are trying to convince you that this is a tool you don't need are the people who are using this tool every single day to advance their agenda. So I know that one vote alone doesn't necessarily change the world immediately, And I say that as somebody who got tear gas, arrested, all those things, and I voted my entire life and it didn't stop that from happening. I also know that in a conversation about building power, voting in the ballot box is one important way. Let's go. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, a former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the task force on 21st century policing and an incredible leader in education. We have Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, III, our resident academic. Hey, everybody. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Uh, and this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So obviously, one of the pieces of news that's on everybody's mind right now is the Mass shooting that happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas on Sunday. Uh, gunmen massacred parishioners in a small Texas church, um, killing 26 people. Uh, the more information comes out about it, it, the more it looks like it is tied to uh, domestic issues with regard to uh, the man's uh, partner and and uh, seeking some sort of, um, to enact some sort of violence against uh, his partner's family. Uh, and he ended up killing his partner's uh, grandmother-in-law, or his grandmother-in-law, rather. Um, but, you know, this is a, another example of what are just what is just an endless stream of of deaths that that are happening um, in ways that are, are becoming frightening, and how normal it, they're beginning to feel. Um, and I think, you know, we are. Constantly reminding ourselves that this is not normal, that it is not acceptable, that the reason that the United States has the the problem with these these heinous acts of violence is uh, because we have so many guns. And, and you know, 
it's even it's beyond the point of of naming it as a as a double standard you know it's it, it was just not so long ago about a week ago we had what happened in new york and we saw uh, the reaction from the president uh, with regard to calling for the death penalty for the um, for the man who had immigrated from Uzbekistan and and killed um, killed the folks in New York with the truck, and then this happens, and you see a, a wholly different reaction. Um, and it's not just the president; it's it's reflective of of so many different folks um, in our political stratosphere, and and it's just exhausting you know it's it's exhausting and and it's easy to become disillusioned by this and uh i'm just i'm just sad just sad for the for the families and sad that this is where we are yeah clint you mentioned you know this guy had a record uh of red flags that should have uh led to some sort of identification that he was at risk and uh, some sort of measure to prevent him from getting his hands on an assault weapon. You know, the gunman was jailed for domestic abuse. He was kicked out of the military. He's even charged with animal cruelty. Uh, so, you know, it, it, this is not rocket science, right? Like one thing, it, there are too many guns in the country. We know that. But even uh, among people and getting access to more guns, people who don't have guns, that whole process is just devoid of any type of a uh, real solid uh, evidence-based approach to identifying who is most at risk and preventing those people from getting access to guns, um, especially assault weapons. So, you know, again, there are common sense solutions to all of this, uh, but it's all about political will to put them in place. And, and especially when it's a white gunman, a white man who we know the majority of these gunmen are, you know, you don't see any type of uh, serious policy-based response, particularly from uh, conservatives. And I think that that's a real problem. And this will continue to happen until there is, until it is taken seriously across the, across the aisle. Yeah, Sam, I think this point that you really brought up is critically important. I am personally becoming more aware of research that, quite frankly, has been out there for a long time, expressly connecting uh, occurrences of domestic violence with mass killings. Um, so uh, one report states that out of the 318 mass killing incidents between 2006 and 2016, about half of those involved family members killing relatives and loved ones. So unfortunately, there's a direct correlation between domestic and intimate partner violence um, and the mass shootings that we are becoming all too familiar with in this country and have been all too familiar with. There are loopholes like the boyfriend loophole that they just talked about on Full Frontal last week um, uh, that uh, put firearms in the hands of domestic abusers. Um, often we um, pull up the idea of mental illness and blame that. Some important um, disability activists online and advocates for mental health um, pointed out the fact that really we are not um, decreasing the stigma against mental health, but we're actually increasing the stigma when we blame that solely instead of the lack of gun control, the lack of political will, um, the lack of uh, assurances that abusers and known abusers will not be able to get their hands on firearms as the causes for the kinds of things that we're seeing. Um, because there are lots of folks dealing with mental illness every single day who do not choose to pick up a firearm and kill innocent people. Um, and so, you know, the last thing I'll say is there are so many times where we have been here 
over and over and over again. Um, and I'm I'm over thoughts and prayers, right? I mean, thoughts and prayers are important, but I am a person of faith myself. And the Bible that I read says that faith without works are dead. And so it is not it is not inappropriate to be talking about gun control right now. It's actually very necessary to be talking about gun control right now and the kind of policy solutions and actions that communities, that power holders, that power wielders need to be taking right now in order to save lives, to prevent these kinds of tragedies from happening. Um, if you don't get into politics to save lives, then you should get out right now. And when we think about gun control, which is the natural conversation that leads from this, you know, we're reminded that we can we can do this and, and we want to be mindful that we have gun control that that highlights the role of manufacturers that what we don't want is to just like penalize people who have who have guns because we think that that will likely lead to an over uh, representation of black and brown people being caught up in the system again. But what is true is that nobody in Chicago is like making assault rifles in their backyard. Right, The guns are coming from somewhere. And part of this conversation has to be about how we just have less guns. And, and, and Brittany, it's important that we talk about the relationship between domestic violence and uh, mass shootings, something that I also didn't know about until, until rather recently. You know, Chris, um, Chris Rock has that, that joke in his stand-up that talks about there's no like right to bullets, right? That like we could also price out bullets, right? Like there, there are many ways that we could actually get to this issue of not having guns cause so much damage in neighborhoods and communities. And it is sort of wild that we've had two mass shootings in such a close period of time. And people still are like Congress is still squeamish about whether there should be gun control or not. So these things happen and we, you know, quickly begin to look at the political landscape as we should, uh, because we should be considering like, what are you actually, uh, what concrete steps are, are, are congressional leaders actually taking to prevent things like this from happening again. And when they're not doing those things, they should be held accountable. But I just want to like really reground us in the fact that, you know, sometimes the political conversations which are necessary take us away from like the 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 human implications and kind of take us away from like the the human impact. And, you know, part of what I always think about when I see these things is that, you know, I think of all the times that my own mother like rushed me out of of the house on our way to church and saying like let's go to church it's time to go finish your breakfast and i think of how the people who were going to church that day they woke up they had their breakfast they kissed their children they kissed their husbands they kissed their wives they tied their shoes they put their dishes in the sink they got in the car they went to this church and that there that there's no way that they could know what would happen to them and i think about how arbitrary violence can be. Um, and certainly there is a relationship, as we've mentioned, between domestic violence and intimate partner violence and the manifestations of these sort of larger acts of of violence as well. But uh, but I really just want us to remember how, how these are people who woke up as if it were any other day and how frightening it is that we live in a country where any of us can wake up and think that we are going to have the day that we the, we imagine that there are kids in that church who were excited for their birthdays, that there were people in the, that church excited for their wedding anniversaries, that there were people who were just excited to make dinner that night. And so I really just want us to remember like part of the, what makes these acts of violence so nefarious and, and horrific is how arbitrary they are and and how this could be any of us. And that is reflective of the the really dangerous policies that we have in place that make it so that this could really happen anywhere and to anybody. 
Thanks for that really important reminder, um, Clint, especially as we work to not become desensitized to the massive amounts of gun violence that we experience in this country. As we post this pod, it is election day all across America. Nearly one third of states are experiencing an election today. Um, I think it's really important for us to remember that we vote for more than just ourselves. Uh, when you show up at the polls, think about all of the folks that we discuss often on this pod, people who are returning citizens or are formerly incarcerated, folks who are undocumented, children who need their voice to be heard but do not experience the franchise. Um, there are a lot Lots of conversations about if voting is worth it and all of those kinds of things. But I think it's critically important to remember that it's not just about us. Um, all across the country, there are really important races happening in places like Minneapolis, Seattle and Charlotte. There are critical mayoral races. Um, folks in Virginia and Washington state are have the opportunity to shift majorities in state house and Senate. And there's an all important governor's race happening in Virginia. And there are school board races, city council races. Uh, races for older person happening all across the country and in potentially in your local jurisdiction. I've had some really important conversations over the last few days, both online and offline, about um, the choice to abstain from voting. And I think it's really important that we recognize this is not an either or, that folks have to get out there and participate to secure safety and health in our communities right now. Simultaneous to that, we can be building a real vision for the future that goes beyond two parties and uh, and goes beyond kind of candidates as, as Messiah. Um, but we can do both of those things at the same time. And it's so important to participate right now. Brittany, you mentioned uh, some of the races that are going on uh, on election day. And just to take a step back and think about how important these are. So when we talk about governor's races and state legislatures, uh, whether that's in New Jersey or in Virginia, you know, these are the positions that will decide uh, criminal justice in the state, the positions that will decide reproductive rights, that will decide uh, economic justice and the minimum wage. I mean, these are positions that is, uh, pretty much on any issue, on most issues, uh, the states control uh, the majority of what happens uh, related to that issue. And so these are the races to show up for the races that ha that will have where you will have the most power and influence in actually shaping uh, and improving people's lives uh, in your state. And so, you know, this is something to show up for. It's something uh, to tell all your family and friends and, you know, your Facebook friends who are in that state to show up for. Um, we really need to build a a movement and a coalition uh, to change some of the dynamics, uh, particularly in places like Virginia, which you know have been have had a solidly Republican state legislature and have passed a, a number of bills that have been incredibly harmful to communities, immigrant communities, um, women, people of color, and so we need to push back against that. Yeah, you both make really really important points, and and I'm thinking about what you said, Brittany, and I'm I'm thinking about how. On the left, it feels like we we have not yet figured out how to have a conversation around the limits of electoral politics without falling into the trap of becoming fully disillusioned with electoral politics. And I think of, you know, people that I know and love and respect who who have suggested that pulling out of electoral politics and not voting is the way to uh to convince folks that the system needs to be sort of fully dismantled and recalibrated and uh, that none of the political parties are actually serving our interests. And I think that it is critically important to be critical of, to 
imagine a different context for, to uh, push ourselves to think differently around the ways in which we can hold elected officials accountable without removing ourselves in in our entirety from from the system because what we I think what we recognize is that part of this happened in 2016 there were a lot of folks who were very disillusioned by what was happening in this country this was a sort of post Trayvon post Ferguson post Eric Garner this is the in the midst of uh, a lot of sort of social tumult in in our country especially around uh, issues of racism and and folks who had previously participated in uh, in electoral politics took themselves out. And that is not at all, I want to be clear, not at all the reason why the election or the single reason why the election turned out the way that it did. But I think that in in our disillusionment, we can forget the sort of totality and the scope of how politics shape our lives. And that, you know, we on a federal level, you know, I don't think that people are fully considering the Supreme Court or fully considering each and every department um, in the United States or fully considering uh, the sort of breadth and, and extent to which these uh, the executive branch, how far the executive branch reaches. And I think that the same goes for, as you said, Sam, on a, on a state by state basis. Right. The governor is the executive of of your state. The state legislatures impact your lives oftentimes in in more direct ways than uh, the federal government. And so I just really want to push folks to, as you said, Brittany, like hold both of those truths at once, hold both those things at once. We can move toward a different vision of what electoral politics can look like without removing ourselves completely from it. Because, you know, our politicians are not going to be perfect. They have never been perfect. We should not expect them to be perfect. But what we should do is recognize the ways in which, to, you know, different people have very different conceptions of what uh, certain groups of people deserve. And and we should be fully cognizant of that and we should vote accordingly. And, you know, I'm mindful that all the people that are uh, the people trying to convince uh, you that your vote doesn't matter. They're the people voting in every single election that the right has always been really diligent about their vote while they simultaneously feed this narrative and this language about the, the lack of importance about a vote. The other thing is I've heard people sort of say things like, they're not going to participate in a system that's corrupt. And, and it's like, well, you, 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 by virtue of being here, like you're already a part of, you are necessarily a part of this system and structure. Like you stop me at a stop sign is like a part of, is a part of a larger system and structure. And there's a way that you can participate in this through voting that like actually does help you exercise collective power in a different way, even if it doesn't feel like that. And that is not to take, to take away from the real efforts at voter suppression through like voter ID, gerrymandering, all those things we need to deal with. But there were so many people, like you said, Brittany, who during the last election were like, you know, the president doesn't impact my life. Like none of these people impact my life, da, da, da. And it's like, I think what everybody's seen so clearly is that it really does. And there's a way that you can be a part of it. And voting is one of those ways. So if you are listening and you are wanting to make your plan to vote, write it down because that will help make sure that you actually do it. If you have questions about your vote, you can go to rockthevote.org, look up your state and find out all the rules around voting. Just a reminder, there are 15 states and the District of Columbia that allow same-day registration at your polling place. So so if you are in one of those places, look it up online and find out and see if you can still show up and it's not too late to register. And at the end of the day, remember, the voting booth is just one place where we can seek justice and freedom. Um, And the work will happen today and it will continue tomorrow. Cool. Thanks, y'all. Get out there and vote. 
Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And here's my conversation with Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones. Ari, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Hey, Duray, thank you for having me. It's an honor. So your work right now focuses almost exclusively on, on the voting rights work, voter suppression, voter access. How did you get into this work? I kind of stumbled upon this work by accident, honestly. Uh, After the 2010 election, all the way back then, I noticed all of these states had begun changing their laws to make it harder to vote. Places like Florida and Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, very important swing states. And I thought this was a very important national story that really wasn't getting covered, that this is one of the key ways that Republicans were responding to Barack Obama's election by making it harder for people to vote, primarily people of color, lower income individuals, people that were more likely to vote for Democrats than Republicans. So I started covering this first for Rolling Stone and then for The Nation magazine and then for Mother Jones. And then when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, I became a lot more interested in the history of the Voting Rights Act and why 50 years later, we were still fighting these same kind of battles over voting rights. And that's what led me uh, to write my book, Give Us the Ballot, and then just get a lot deeper into this whole issue of voting and really realizing that we're in a new version of a very old battle when it comes to voter suppression. And what is that new version? The new version, I think, is more subtle, slightly less outwardly racist, but has the same kind of effect as the laws that we saw 
back then. So things like requiring strict voter ID or closing polling places or cutting early voting or disenfranchising ex-offenders, people don't think of them quite the same way as poll taxes or literacy tests that just outright prevented people from voting. But if you look at the effect of the laws, they have the same kind of effect, where, for example, African-American voters are less likely to possess strict forms of voter ID. They're more likely to use early voting and election day registration. They're more likely to be affected by polling place closures. They're more likely to be incarcerated because of our system of mass incarceration, meaning their voting rights are more likely to be taken away. So I think when you dig deeper, you realize that the legacy of Jim Crow is still playing out with our voting laws, but just in slightly more subtle and less obvious ways. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about your reporting is that you you cover these stories that just that would otherwise go unnoticed. Uh, so, I'd love for you to talk about what are some what are some stories that you think have not broken through on the national stage in the way that they they should have given the impact. Well, one of the things I was really frustrated about was the 2016 election was the first presidential election in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, because when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 and ruled that those states with longest histories of discrimination no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government, that ruling was really felt for the first time in the 2016 election. But there were 25 debates during the presidential election cycle and not a single question about the attack on voting rights or the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So I've really tried to tell that story both before the election and after the election. And I wrote a piece about the impact of Wisconsin's voter ID law, uh, which is in the November-December issue of uh, Mother Jones and is called Rigged. And I, I really looked at this one law as a microcosm of what was happening in 2016. And what, what I saw was that Wisconsin passed a strict voter ID law after the 2010 election. About 9% of registered voters didn't have these strict forms of ID. Uh, black voters were 50% more likely than whites to not have these forms of ID. And I found that tens of thousands of people had been blocked from the polls during the 2016 election in Wisconsin. And I talked to voters who weren't able to cast a ballot. I talked to election officials that thought this had a key impact on the race. I cited studies like from the University of Wisconsin that found that one in 10 people who didn't cast a ballot in Milwaukee and Madison, the most democratic parts of Wisconsin, uh, were blocked or deterred from voting because of the voter ID law. That meant that 23,000 people were blocked from voting in two counties alone and up to 45,000 statewide because of this one law, and Donald Trump only won the state by 22,700 votes. So I think that both the impact of voter suppression during the 2016 election and the fact that voter suppression is now getting worse with Republicans in control of so many states, with Jeff Sessions in charge of the Justice Department, with Chris Kobach on Donald Trump's quote-unquote election integrity commission, I feel like history is going to repeat itself in the future if we don't do something about trying to protect voting rights now. What the Voting Rights Act said was that those states with the longest histories of discrimination had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. That part of the Voting Rights Act blocked 3,000 discriminatory voting changes from 1965 to 2013. So it was a huge part of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, And then the Supreme Court said that that no longer had to happen, that those states didn't need to get federal approval to implement new voting laws. What that meant is that states like Texas and North Carolina and Mississippi and Alabama rushed to pass 
new voter suppression measure. So it had a real tangible effect on the ground. At the same time, states that weren't covered by this provision of the Voting Rights Act, like Wisconsin and Ohio, had already put new voting restrictions in effect after the 2010 election. So we saw both that voter suppression efforts in the South were given a green light, while at the same time, the same type of voter suppression efforts were migrating to the north. And so it was sort of a two-pronged attack on voting rights. Uh, and, and that's why I think the Supreme Court's decision was so harmful to our democracy. And what was the logic that they used to, to make that decision, that the protections were no longer needed? The logic of Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the opinion, was that, in his words, History had changed dramatically since 1965, but the Voting Rights Act had not. That it continued to treat the country as if it had not changed when it came to issues of voting and race, even though in Robert's view, there had been a tremendous amount of progress. And what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said in her dissent was that that was like throwing away your umbrella because you weren't getting wet one day. It didn't mean that it wasn't going to rain the next day. And in fact, what we've seen since the Supreme Court said that history has changed was that all of these states rushed to pass new voter suppression measures that in many ways echoed Jim Crow. So history hadn't changed. In fact, what what we're seeing was that the dark history of the past was resurfacing uh, in large part because of the Supreme Court's opinion. And what is what is the stuff that we can do? Well, I think first off, as a journalist, it's really important to make people aware of what's going on. I think the fact that you guys are talking about it, I think, is really, really important because, uh, as, as I mentioned, the fact that there were 25 presidential debates and not a single question about the attack on voting rights, I mean, a lot of people had no idea what was going on or, or, or why it was such a big deal. Then I think there's organizations out there that, that are doing really terrific work. I know you're talking to the ACLU about their work, the fact that they're doing a 50-state voting rights campaign. There's new organizations out there uh, like Let America Vote uh, that is trying to engage not just in the courts, but trying to sway public opinion on this issue. So I think one of the things that, that has always motivated me was a lot of people think, well, yeah, voting rights were a big deal in the 1960s, but we've solved that problem. People aren't being disenfranchised anymore. I hear that over and over and over. And the stories I'm trying to tell are saying, no, people are being disenfranchised, that yes, things have improved a lot since the 1960s, but we're in a new version of a very own battle here. And I think people have to understand that voting rights is not a fringe issue, but it affects every other issue. That if people care about uh, mass incarceration or a woman's right to choose or a clean environment, if you don't have a strong right to vote, you're not going to solve any of those other problems. Now, you talked about strict ID. What is strict ID? Strict ID, as I define it, are limited forms of government-issued ID to cast a ballot. And, and I know I hear this all the time. I'm sure you hear this all the time. Well, what's a big deal? Doesn't everyone just have these kinds of ID? Well, if you look at a study from the Brennan Center for Justice, for example, 25% of African Americans do not have strict forms of government-issued ID, like a driver's license or a state photo ID, uh, compared to a, a much smaller proportion of white voters. Younger voters, lower-income voters are less likely to possess these IDs. And if you look at how some of the laws are written, they're written specifically to target certain groups of people. So in Texas, under their 
voter ID law, you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. And I think that's the kind of thing that you realize, aha, there's maybe a different kind of purpose to these laws beyond just trying to target voter fraud, which is a very, very small problem in American elections and voter impersonation. The kind of fraud that a voter ID law would stop is virtually non-existent. You also wrote this article about the North Carolina voter suppression legislation that got overturned by the courts and that there was a particular lawyer who was defending North Carolina. Can you talk about that? Yeah, he was a guy by the name of Tom Farr. He defended North Carolina's voter suppression law in 2013 that cut early voting, required strict ID, eliminated same-day voter registration. It was called by the courts the worst voter suppression law in North Carolina since Jim Crow. He defended this law he also defended the gerrymandering in North Carolina that federal courts said disenfranchised illegally black voters. So he has really been the go-to lawyer in North Carolina when it comes to defending voter suppression. I think even more alarming than that, he's been a longtime associate of Jesse Helms, who was really one of the most racist politicians in America for a very, very long time. So Tom Farr, who Trump has nominated as a federal judge, is one of those guys that really comes out of the Jim Crow South and has still been very, very involved with efforts to make it harder, particularly for African-Americans to be able to vote. And, and I think the story of what Trump is doing to the judiciary has, has not gotten nearly enough attention because so many people are focused on the dysfunction in Washington, but Trump is nominating judges to the federal courts every single day and getting them confirmed. And they're the people that are going to hear these cases on voting rights, on criminal justice, on so many issues. And so I think this particular story of what Trump is doing to the judiciary needs a lot more attention. Now, what's going on in Texas? You wrote an article about the courts overturning some laws in Texas. What, what, what's going on in Texas? So th- there was a, a remarkable string where Texas just had law after law after law uh, overturned, both their voter ID law, where I mentioned you could vote uh, with a, a gun permit, but not a student ID. That law has been ruled intentionally discriminatory by the courts on three different occasions. You also had Texas redistricting plans for the state legislature and for the U.S. House uh, ruled unconstitutional. This is all unfortunately working its way through the courts and taking a very long time. I think a lot of this stuff is going to end uh, at the Supreme Court. And What makes me hopeful is that so many of these restrictions, whether it's gerrymandering or or voter ID, have been overturned. What makes me nervous is they could still be reinstated by the Supreme Court. And I think when Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat from President Obama and put Neil Gorsuch on the court, they did it precisely so they would be able to put new voting restrictions and those kind of things in effect in the future. So I'm not saying this is decided at all, but I'm just saying this is another reason why the courts matter, because so much of this stuff has not only played out in the courts, but is still playing out today. And why should we care about Chris Kobach? <laughs> that's, that's, a very, that's a very good question. Well, I mean, Chris Kobach has really been the leading figure in terms of restricting voting and in terms of restricting immigration. So, I mean, I think he literally is trying to make America more white and more conservative by both reducing the non-white population and 
in terms of immigrants, and also reducing uh, non-white political participation by passing voter suppression laws. And he's someone that, I mean, he's a Secretary of State of Kansas. I mean, how many other Secretaries of State can anyone name? Um, but he has this huge national profile because Donald Trump has made him the vice chair of the quote-unquote Election Integrity Commission, which I think the worry is that they're going to spread all of these lies about voter fraud and make voter fraud seem like this massive problem in American elections, to then build support for restricting voting rights by requiring strict voter ID or purging the voting rolls or requiring a birth certificate or a passport to register to vote, which millions of Americans uh, don't have. And so I think he's someone that Donald Trump has leaned on as a top advisor when it comes to voter fraud, when it comes to immigration. And so uh, to me, he's really the central figure behind so many of the regressive policies that are coming out of the Trump administration. I think that's why he's someone that we should care about. And are there any bright spots? Like, who's doing this? Is there a state leading on giving people the right to vote? There are some bright spots. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is automatic registration. So this idea that, you know, you go to the DMV or a public agency, and if they can verify who you are and that you're eligible to vote, they'll just automatically register you to vote. Uh, Oregon did this in the last election. They were able to register 300,000 new voters through automatic registration. There was a huge jump in registration among young voters and people of color, which I thought was really significant. And Oregon, even though it wasn't a swing state, had the highest increase in voter turnout from 2012 to 2016. So this kind of policy worked really well in Oregon. Ten states have now signed on to automatic registration. The governor of Illinois just became the first Republican to sign on to an automatic registration bill, so it has bipartisan support. And I think this is the kind of future we should be in. The government has the ability to make it far easier for people to be able to vote. It's not that we don't have the ability to do this, it's that our leaders don't have the political will to get it done. So, you know, at the same time, I'm looking at voter suppression in North Carolina and Wisconsin and Texas. I'm also looking at what's working in other states like Oregon and how that is also becoming a national trend now that, you know, 10 states have signed on to it. And that's one of the things that, you know, gives me hope in, in what is in many ways kind of dark days right now. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Ari, for, for joining. And we consider your friend of the pod. Can you tell people how they can find you and, and access your work? Well, thanks so much, Dari. I really enjoyed it. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, at Ari Berman. Uh, they can go to my website, which is ari-berman.com, and they can uh, read me at motherjones.com, and my book is called Give Us the Ballot. Cool. Thanks so much, Ari. Awesome. Thanks, man. Great to talk to you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's cold K-cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Faz Shakir, the National Political Director of the ACLU. Faz, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Great to be with you, Dre. Thank you. 
You're with the ACLU as yeah. the political director. I am. How did you get to the ACLU? Well, so the ACLU found me to a degree. Uh, so after I worked for Harry Reid uh, for the past four and a half years, Anthony Romero, the executive director of the ACLU, reached out and said, hey, we're, we've got this Trump moment and we're trying to rebuild our political muscle at the ACLU. We're looking for some top-notch people to come on board and help us flex that ACLU political muscle. Will you help us do it? I'm like, hell yes. This is the right time, the right place, the right people. I felt really great talking with him and the senior staff, really good about the architecture of the ACLU. You got 50 state affiliates. I don't know if people know that. You got 50 state infrastructure right there. Mm-hmm. So as a political director walking in the door, you'd like you 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 understand you've got this incredible architecture to work with. And so really it just meant kind of building in some new uh strength and tools and skills into the into this architecture. How was it working for Reed? Harry Reed is uh man, I could spend an hour with you talking about what a ama- what an amazing person that that man is. Uh he's like family to me. Uh, I mean, everything from the personal to the fact that when I had my child, he pulled my wife into the room and said, I want you to keep him home anytime you need him uh, and tell anyone that Harry Reid said it was okay. Uh, And that's because I don't want him here thinking about his child. When he's here, I want him thinking about work. And so if you need him home, keep him home. So things from the personal to like professional. I mean, just he would he would just stay by my side, helping me through all kinds of decisions that he was making and, and helping me think along with him. Why are we doing it this way as opposed to a different way? What's the best argument to make about this? What are the sensitivities uh, that you have to uh, uh, take into consideration when building a, an, a caucus alliance on something? Just watching him work, I tell you, he's a master at it. And, and a lot of people say that, but there's just a, a style uh, that he carried himself, which was very little ego. Uh, in a huge projection of confidence, like stick with me on this one. We're going to win this one. And I'm like, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> what are the skills that you took from from that experience into the ACLU? So first of all, I mean, you look at someone who understands how to build uh, a team. I mean, if, if, you, if you've talked to anyone who's ever worked with Harry Reid, the first thing they'll say is, yeah, I was part of team Reid. I was part of a team. And that matters so much to me. When you're when politics, and you know this better than anybody, you go into these battles with an army, and you win with an army. You don't go into them alone. It's not like the strength of your personality, Dre. When you win, like on the ground, or you're even when you're getting arrested, suited up for battle, you know that you're doing it on behalf of a team that is going to back you up and it's going to fight with you on anything you're doing. And I think. Uh, the manner in which he operated that kind of built a loyalty and a respect about team uh, is the greatest asset I took away. And so like now as I work with state affiliates and other people within the organization, I'm constantly thinking about, hey, you know, we may have differences opinion on this, but we're all working towards a team, right? We're all working towards the same goal, keeping that in mind. I had David Colon not too long ago to talk about the big uh, pieces of, or the big cases that, that ACU was focused on. What are the things that are on your plate? So, you know, first of all, David Cole is the national legal director at the ACLU bringing some awesome stuff. And so it's really uh, the, the, the kinship that we have between me and him is great. He's written a book about how much uh, the, the fact that when laws change or when courts issue opinions, it's because people change the courts, that activism created the change. Uh, everything from gun rights to LGBT rights, everything across the board, it, it's people who've led that movement. And so now I'm trying to build up a grassroots mobilization at the ACLU. 
Uh, we've done it through peoplepower.org, this, this building of people power through a bunch of campaigns. The latest campaign is Let People Vote campaign, which is trying to expand voting rights across the country. And you look at what we're trying to do, it's it's in tandem with the law. The problem with the law— uh, <laughs> Let me talk to you about the problem with the law. But when, when, you're, when you're fighting litigation um, and, and using litigation as a tactic, you're always fighting on defense, right? Because something had to have happened. For and then a lawsuit. You, right. And then you, have, you bring a lawsuit, you find a client who can have standing in fighting that case, and you're trying to stop that bad thing from happening. And hopefully in stopping that bad thing from happening, you're saving a lot of other people from from that bad thing. But now, you know, what we're trying to do is change law to allow positive things to happen. We're going to play on offense here, not just defense. Play on offense and take these opportunities. So litigation would approach voting rights by saying, where's voter suppression being felt? Let's find a client. Let's fight against that voter suppression ID bill. And I'm saying, okay, we could keep doing that for literally the next 20, 30 years and just get nowhere. Like, we got to do that. It's like kind of like mandatory. But if we're going to really change the ball game, you got to go out and advocate for changes in laws that expand access to the ballot, that make our democracy more representative. And that's, you can only, I think, do that right now by advocating at the state level for state changes, state by state by state by state by state, uh, because there's nothing passing out of Congress right now. So people have heard about voter suppression, like in the news generally and about the importance of of these laws. But how would you pitch this issue to people who for whom it's new to them? So if I was talking to somebody who doesn't understand anything about voting in America, first of all, we got a broken system. Let's just be honest about it. We got a patchwork system. Different states have different laws. And and there are so many different rules that govern it from how early can I vote? Like some states you can vote like many weeks before the election. In other states, you can only vote on the day of the election. Uh, how can I get registered? Different states, you can vote by mail. Some states you get, you have to like literally show up with like reams and reams of documents and papers and maybe you'll get registered. So I think that first thing you need to understand is we're talking about a system that's broken. It's got a lot of different laws in place. And so when, when you, as advocates who are trying to make the system better, you have to appreciate that you've, each state has its own remedy. You're not probably going to have a nationwide uh, easy answer to this problem. There's certain na- national responses that would be wonderful, like we should re-enfranchise all ex-felons and give them the right to vote back on a national scale. That would be great to do. Uh, but our dysfunctional Congress as it is, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So I would say to that layperson, hey, if you want to fix the system, you got to understand the laws and the policies in your state. You're in Maryland, you're in Florida, you're in Nebraska, understand the laws, and then let's work together to identify what is the what are those incremental changes that that we can do that will expand the right of people to vote. Uh, and for each state, that answer is different. We're and we're engaged in this effort. We've worked with all of our 50 state affiliates to come up with what is that incremental, or in some cases not even incremental, but a substantial change to empower more people to get access to the ballot. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but can yeah. you, this, is like a, this isn't a quiz. This is a, I'm trying to understand yeah. is can you pick like three states and help us think through? Yeah. 
like what they be. So here we go. Well, let's start with Florida because I know you and I care a lot about what's going on in Florida right now. So we'll start with Florida. And that is that 1.5 million people there who are ex-felons do not have the right to vote. Why is that? Because in 1868... 1868, think about when that was. We had the black codes in Florida. After the passage of 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that granted the power uh, and the right and the equality of African Americans to vote, a number of states say, hey, I'm going to find a way for you not to vote. And they say, well, we're going to create a whole bunch of new felonies, and then we're going to stop felons from voting, and then we're going to trap you in the system. It's existed since 1868, right? It's crazy. So here we are in 2017, and the way we're going to change this is change this Florida state constitution because it's in the state constitution. The only way you can do that is through a ballot initiative. And we are collecting signatures. We're going to knock on wood here. We're going to get to our requisite number by the end of this year, which is uh, about 800,000, let's say, by 800,000 signatures verified uh, by the end of this year. And then we're going to be on the ballot. And so in November of 2018, we got to get 60% plus and end this radical injustice that exists in Florida and re-enfranchise 1.5 million plus people. So that's Florida, right? And that, that means just signature gathering. Hey, everybody, bust your ass, get out there, let's get some signatures. There's going to be a lot of things that just happen through the state legislature. So like, uh, let's stick with felon re-enfranchisement for a moment. So in Nebraska, they have actually passed a bill where they, you know, they ban um, people from ex-felons from voting for two years. They have a two-year wait period. Why? Who the hell knows? It doesn't make any sense, but you have to sit uh, for two years and wait for your right to get restored. So they've passed a bill through there that would uh, waive that two-year waiting period. And the governor vetoed it last session. Now, why should felons have the right to vote? So here's, here's the way I would say that. This is the way I would answer that. Everyone should have the right to vote. I don't care if you're talking about a felon or not, honestly. Everyone should have the right to vote. Now, felons, you know, it has become a, a, a backward system in America in which we believe that if you committed a crime, you, you lose the privilege, the privilege of voting. So they, it's not thought of as a right. It's thought of as a privilege. And you know, we can take it away from you. And there are a lot of politicians eager to take that away from you because they're worried about uh, felons voting for the other person, right? So that's fundamentally what's behind the case. So like, okay, fine. We have this stupid system that takes away people's right to vote if they're a felon and in jail. So the what we should at least agree to is that if you've paid your debt to society uh, and you've come out and you're working to rehabilitate your life and we as a society are working to re- rehabilitate you in many different ways, why can't we give you the damn right to vote? Uh, and so I think at the very least, it, people who've paid their debt to society should get their right to vote back. That's something that should be core and basic and yet doesn't exist. So should we, another state? I'm just going to Yeah, gonna we got to get three. Room. I didn't forget. Okay. Uh, do you want to pick one? I'm just going to. No, no, no. Um, this is, you right. tell, you're the expert. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just asking the questions trying to understand. Um, Florida, I knew about. So, okay. So that's here, helpful. we'll just go to. Nebraska, I didn't know about. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, we had a couple big buckets and you and I have talked about, um, uh, re-enfranchisement of felons. C- can I give you two more states? Cause I yeah. want to, I want to exemplify the two Let's different things. So, the other major problem we face in America is our partisan gerrymander. Mm-hmm. And Georgia is working on a plan to uh, essentially empower an independent, nonpartisan commission to redraw 
the lines. Okay, and uh, that's a good this, thing. Yeah, this that's absolutely a great thing. We, yeah, our 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 system is re, are disenfranchising so many people from their vote being counted because of gerrymanders. Now explain gerrymandering quickly. Like yeah. a, gerrymandering one hundred and one is what? So gerrymandering is essentially the drawing of the lines in a state about where your vote. It is cast and counted uh, when it comes to voting for anything from state legislator to your uh, national uh, congressman, right? And so there's a, you vote based on like your geography, and the people arbitrarily draw lines. It, it would surprise no one to know that the reason that dr- lines are drawn the way they are is for incumbency protection. People who've been in office want to continue to remain in office, so they draw the lines that benefit them the most, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. So it, one of the best examples of this is in Wisconsin, which is broken in many ways on voting. In Wisconsin, they you know they had a a a, um, re- a Republican state house uh, uh, who won uh, by a slim margin. Right, a slim margin of the vote uh, statewide, and got sixty percent of the state house seats. Then the next cycle, they win by a much larger margin. Republicans in the in the state, state house is sixty percent. In some, so like that tells you that the fact that people are voting in droves and turning out in different ways is not being reflected whatsoever in the composition of their state electorate body. Hmm. It's like what we want is like your vote to count. We want it to matter. And so having independent redistricting is critical because you got to have, I think that there's a multi-layers to this. One is you got to have people who aren't invested in the, in the outcome of like where those lines are drawn, uh, experts. But you also want probably a system like with nowadays we have so much data. We should be able to do this with computers right. like who account for here's people of color, here's like representational issues that we've got to have and we'll factor this all in in a fair way. There shouldn't be like people drawing lines uh, arbitrarily. So there, there's much better ways to do this and it starts with an independent redistricting commission. So in, in, in Georgia, we're advocating for this um, issue in a n- number of states, but Georgia is, is one of them. And so last, can I go my last yeah, bucket. So last is election election reforms, and one of the most powerful reforms um, that you can do on election reform. So things like um, uh, expand the early vote, no excuse absentee voting. But the one that I'm going to talk about that I, that we love the most is called what is excuse absentee no, voting? No excuse. Know, absentee what's the opposite? Voting. What's excuse? So, absentee so excuse as like so some states will stop you from being able to vote early absentee. Because you aren't in the list of the things that are deemed to be an excuse. So, like, I'm traveling overseas, uh, or I have I'm stationed overseas, right, for the military. Or those uh, are normally okay. Yeah, I, I, or may, those would be reasons why. Yes, you can vote absentee early. But if I just like wanted to stay at home, right. Got it. They're like, nope, you can't do it. And no excuse absentee is like, I should, no matter what the reason is, I should be able to mail my ballot in. That's right. Got it. Okay. That's right. And okay. we want that, right? We want yes. that. We want to make it easier for people to say, like, hey, I'm traveling or like, hey, I'm having a child in a month. So like, can I vote now? Um, in, in Virginia, we're doing that. No excuse absentee. But the but the one that we really care about the most that we're fired up about and that Chris Kobach, the secretary of state of Kansas, hates the most, the Trump guy who's leading this voter fraud commission is the issue of election day registration. It's huge. If you if you can register and vote on election day, it's a game changer. Why? And, and be, because you think about um, first, get out the vote operations. Everyone's hustling on day of to get get out the vote. And on on that day, you learn f- 
from so many people like, oh, sh- oh shoot, I didn't, I didn't register. And it's like, well, there's nothing we can do for you now. You know, right. I wish you had registered. So really the, the ability to just knock down walls and say, hey, today is your day. Even if you had done nothing up to now, we, I can drive you to the polls and your vote can be counted. I can help you get your voice counted. Much easier uh, burden to overcome, right? For, for, for the 40% of the American public who has checked out of our politics, right? Remember, yeah. we're being represented by essentially 60% of the voting public, 40% still out there. How do we get them engaged? Knock down these walls. Election day registration, just show up, register, vote, you'll be counted. And so we're doing that in a number of places. This is the one that we care most about. And if, so if states wanted to work with us on, we're like, hey, you want to do something? Do this one, election day registration. So Kansas is our is our big one. And I, I say Kansas because we're working with a big coalition there, but it happens to be the home state of, of Chris Kobach. And he, you know, he he hates it. I mean, he's openly talked about how, oh, you know, that means that you can drive in from out of state and just cast your vo- vote. And um and so he he argued this in North New Hampshire recently. He's like, well, you know, in New Hampshire, all these college kids drove in from out of state and changed the vote. And the Secretary of State of New Hampshire, who's on the Trump commission with Chris Kobach, is like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, dude. He tells him, like, guy, you know, like the the reason that people came in and voted was that they were students who were in freaking New Hampshire. They were right. Dartmouth students. They were College of New Hampshire or whatever, University of New Hampshire. They, they were in state and they had out of state driver's licenses because maybe they lived somewhere else, but then they voted in state. So what they did in New Hampshire is crazy, but they tried to pass a, a law, or they have passed a law to to actually fine you <laughs> if you don't take a second affirmative step as a student. Uh, after the vote has occurred, so like I go in and vote on Tuesday, let's say, I'm supposed to now by state law come in three days later, or within three days, and show you that I live in dorm room X at the university. That passed? Or, yes. Or I will get imp- uh, fined thousands That's of dollars. Wild. $5,000. Crazy, right? They're just literally How trying to How did that pass? Like, did, P- did we just not know enough? Did, did they, it like slide into the radar? They mobilized quickly. Yeah, they mobilized very quickly and passed it. Yeah, in the in the state of New Hampshire, you know, it, it's unfortunate. I was like, these are the kinds of laws that people are probably are not really focused on that have really uh, detrimental effect on 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 participation rates across the country. I mean, you wonder like, hey, why why didn't more people vote? And uh, why is the margin so thin? It's because they're trying to stop you from voting. That is what is going on. And and we have to obviously work our asses off to overcome that. We shouldn't just take it and be like, well, you know, they put up all these barriers. And like, you know, why, why even bother? I mean, you still got to like work our tails off and, and overcome those barriers. But in the meantime, let's let's work to change these laws. Now, can you talk to me a little bit about the purging? Yeah. In What's Ohio. happening with the purge? So in Ohio, so you're referring to, a, um, I mean, it's obviously happened in a lot of places. It's happened in Georgia. It's happened in Ohio. And this for people is, who know nothing probably, about yeah, vote purging, what's yeah, happening? I'm going to define it for you. So, so vote purging is occurring uh, in many Republican-led states, honestly, where they are going through the voting rolls and they're saying, hey, did you vote in the last cycle? Did you vote in the last two cycles? If you didn't vote in the last two cycles, you're off the rolls. We're just going to send you a notice. You're kicked off. And obviously, like, why would why would somebody want to do that? Well, I've, going to the issue we were talking about before, incumbency factor. So if you're winning office with your people, your small group of people coming out and voting for you, then yeah, you want to kick other people out. Uh, and you want to make an easy system to kick people out. So in Ohio, we have a, a case that's going up before the Supreme Court. Um, 
and our friends at Demos uh, and us were working together on that case and we're arguing that the thousands of voters who've been uh, hundreds of thousands have been kicked off of the voting rolls is unconstitutional um, uh, and it's a violation of their state law. And so we we are uh, – I mean it's, it's just – it doesn't make any sense, Dre. Like why, why would you take every I – mean, in, in Ohio, it was just like you miss one election cycle and you're off the rolls. One election cycle. What the hell? Aren't voters upset about that though? I hope so. We don't know yet. I hope so. I mean, like the the fact is, in places like Georgia and places like Ohio, this is occurring. Like they, they're doing it to you, and we're trying to uh, work with our coalition partners to get people out in the streets and say, like, we're pissed off about this, and make sure you register your vote on election day and and change this nonsense. But but I, I don't know. I I mean, you, you listen to the other side, and they say, well, you know, it's just voter maintenance, and we just want to we just want to make sure we're not wasting money on um, keeping uh, people on the rolls. Well, there's easier ways to do this. If that's your real, if that's your serious concern, then we can work on a system that doesn't just take people automatically off the rolls. You go through a verification process of the people on the rolls, make sure that they either are dead or have moved out of state. There's a way to verify that, and then you carefully take people off the rolls. But what they're doing is just like, hey, first gut instinct, you're off the rolls. You know, let me just... Is, what do you say? You know, one of the other things that they say, though, is that there's all this voter fraud happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that is the big myth in this country is that there's major voter frauds. And like, literally, what you find when you dig into the data in this is that in those small number of instances, tiny, I'm talking about a handful of instances where somebody voted in a state and should not have. Uh, I'm literally, I'm talking about like like count on one hand or two hands the number of instances. O- almost every single one of those, because the person didn't know they were doing it illegally. They were like, you know, I had just moved to a different state. I thought I was registered here. Uh, I guess I did. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that that. Or I'm an ex felon. I didn't realize ex felons are are barred from voting here. I was just trying to vote. You know, I'm uh, I'm going through the immigration process. I thought I had gotten my, you know, the green card status. I was fine to vote. Didn't realize it. Just like tiny numbers. Right. All done. It's not people being like, I'm trying to subvert yeah, democracy. Exactly. Like, okay. <laughs> no intentionality here. So like, but, but, but let's think about like, why do they propound the voter fraud myth? Why are they, why do they keep saying that there's millions upon millions of people who are voting illegally? Because it is the path. To disenfranchising a lot of people. Yeah. If you can convince people, then you can put in place all kinds of voter ID restrictions and make it much more difficult for people to vote, particularly people of color. And obviously, Republicans look at people of color as as the enemy and see too often see them as the reason uh, that uh, like it, it see them as the 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 people who are voting for their opponents. And so we just got to stop that from happening. Now, where can people go to either find out what they need to do in their state, join a group of people that are working on these issues, what what can people do? So, you know, what I would suggest is a first stop shopping. <laughs> you know, I'm from the ACLU. We've got a 50-state campaign that we're very proud of. Uh, vote.peoplepower.org. Vote.peoplepower.org will get you involved in selecting your state. So you identify where your state is, and then you see what your plan is for that particular state. Whether you're from Florida, you talked about Florida, how to, how to get involved in Florida ballot petition gathering, or, you know, Nebraska, and start working the state legislator overturn this two-year waiting period. Um, Georgia, you know, let's do the redistricting thing. So like, so it depends on where you live, and I hope you go to vote.peoplepower.org. We're working with a bunch of coalition partners, so if you happen to be a coalition who is in one of these states and wants to work with us to get this this done, please reach out to me directly. I'm fshakir at aclu.org. I love receiving email, fshakir, F-S-H-A-K-I-R at aclu.org.
And, uh, you know, in moments like this, people are losing hope. They feel like the world's like falling apart. What do you say to those people? It's hard right now. It's difficult. You look at like vulnerable people across the community, across the country, and look at like what Trump's been saying to them. We want to wall you out. We want to ban you, want to detain you, deport you, surveil you, call you guilty without due process, stop and frisk you, take your land and water, build an oil pipeline through it, take away your health care. If you're a woman, uh, make your health care decisions for you, stop you from voting. You know, all that crap, it, 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 is, it is demoralizing. It is tough. It is, it is hard to suffer through. Got to persist, first of all. Got to persist. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't get better until we make it better. Um, but I also think, you know, and this is for me personally, everyone comes to the politics for a different reason. And I swear to you, DeRay, like if I, if I, if politics was awesome, it was a utopia, I would be coaching high school baseball right now. I, that, that is what I would be much more excited to do with Did my life. Did you play life. baseball as a kid? Yeah, I, I played baseball and uh, played in college and high school and got recruited. It was you know, something that I, I love. I, I would be on the, I would be on the ball field and uh, I love teaching. I love coaching. That'd be, that'd be what I'd be doing now. But it's because politics is unjust that I stay engaged in this. It's the, it's the injustices every day that, that drive me. And I've taken an attitude and I hope more people share it that if not me, then who, you know, like it, the, it, to see Trump, become the president of the United States, what a full frontal assault and, and slap in the face it is to so many of us. Like It really, in many days, as, as someone who's raised Muslim, brown skin, weird name, you know, it, it, there are days I wake up and feel like, man, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like his enemy. I mean, he, he hates me. He's like really engaged in trying to like put together policies that demean me and demoralize me every day, every day. Yeah. And it's not just me, right? Like trans, if you're, if you're Latino, if you're African-American, you're feeling the same thing I'm feeling. So I, I understand, I understand that, but like, it is those injustices that drive me. It is, it, it, and it, not, that's not for everybody, but I hope that you feel a little bit about that, that like you see, you looked into the face of evil policies and you said, damn, all right, got work to do. And repeat one more time where people can find you and where people can find the next steps. Sure. Uh, so first of all, you can find me, Faz Shakir, National Political Director, F. Shakir at ACLU.org. I, like I said, I love email. I love hearing from people. So you can always contact me. Peoplepower.org is our uh, grassroots hub, our mobilization arm for the ACLU. Obviously, if you want to know anything and everything about ACLU, it's ACLU.org and at, on Twitter at ACLU. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Posse of the People. We can see you're a friend of the pod and we'll see you back soon. Hey, I, I got to give you a quick plug because I really, I really care about this, which is that, you know, you, you, Dura, I've, I've seen and watched you in many ways. Uh, and uh, I just love people who live their values, you know, and, and, and I see you kind of suit up to get arrested. You get suit up to mobilize people. You suit up to run for office. You suit up to fight the fight. And uh, I just wanted to take a moment to just say like, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I'm one of many people who wants to figure out how to change the world. So we can do it. (laughs) Thank you for being (laughs) here. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And here's my conversation with Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. You know, that in the Anti-Defamation League's latest audit of anti-Semitic incidents, it reports that from January 1st to September 30th, there were 1,299 anti-Semitic incidents across the United States, including physical assaults, vandalism, and attacks on Jewish institutions. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Jonathan. Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you for joining us today on Pot Save the People. Uh, I'm glad to be here. How'd you end up at the ADL? That's not where you started. It's definitely not where I started. Um, so... Most previously to this, I worked for President Obama in the White House. I was uh, his special assistant, and I ran the Office of Social Innovation. So I was focused on how do we use innovation to accelerate economic recovery, boost job creation. I did that for three and a half years. Before that, I was out in California building businesses. I worked in technology uh, and software. I co-founded Ethos Water a business, a bottle of water business that uses its profits to help children get clean water. And we sold it to Starbucks in 2005, and I worked there for some time as a senior executive. I also started a venture called All for Good that was incubated at Google and built with Google engineers. And then that was acquired in 2011. So I'm kind of a startup guy. I'm a social entrepreneur, and I'm a rehabilitated uh, public servant. <laughs> Now, when people, when a lot of people think about the Anti-Defamation League, they think about sort of primarily Jewish issues. What do you say to people who say to you all that you should just stay in that lane, that you should just fight anti-Semitism, that that's like, that's what you should do? Why is your, why is your mission broader than that in some ways? And, and what do you say to critics? Yeah, I mean, I look, when we were founded in 1913, it was an amazing thing because the Jewish community was weak and vulnerable in this country. We didn't have any economic power or kind of, you know, social capital we have today. And yet the founders who created ADL to fight for the Jewish community also wrote in its mission, it would fight for all people. When America is good for all its minorities, it's also good for its Jewish people. And so our founders realized that. And that's the reason why in 1952, we filed an amicus brief in Brown v. Board of Education. That's the reason why we participated in the, among the Freedom Riders. That's the reason why my predecessor, my predecessor in the summer, in February of 1965, marched with Dr. King in Selma and many, many other people. And look today in Charlottesville, when those neo-Nazis and white supremacists marched, they were saying horribly racist things and anti-Semitic things. They were talking about preserving the Confederacy. And then they were saying, Jews will not replace us. The fight against racism is, is interlinked with the fight against anti-Semitism. And the fight against anti-Semitism is interwoven with the fight against racism. We have a shared struggle and a common purpose 
to ensure that America lives up to the ideals of its founders. That's why we're focused on fighting intolerance, all forms. So in the public, we've seen uh, anti-Blackness show up very overtly. Uh, and I think that for so many people, Charlottesville was the first time they saw like white supremacists literally say Jews will not replace us. Like they, it was so overt for the first time for some people. Yeah. How would you explain sort of the way that anti-Semitism shows up in America and in, in ways that we can fight it? Well, I think, you know, again, I think anti-Semitism is, uh, anti-Semitism is one of the, you know, it's often described as the oldest hatred for 2000 years since, you know, Jews were expelled from, you know, ancient Jerusalem by the Romans. They've lived uh, in exile in countries around the world. And very often, unfortunately, more often than not, that those exiles, if you will, that, that has ended with either forced conversion, um, you know, a, a repeated exile or persecution and death. And we've seen this again and again in the Middle East, and we've seen this again and again in Europe. It's a pretty ugly history. Here in the United States, we've lived with tremendous privilege you know, since the country was founded hundreds of years ago. And there's certainly been incidences of prejudice. Sometimes this shows up when people, let's say they decry, um, like Steve Bannon, they say, you know, I don't have a problem with the Jewish state. It's just globalists that I have a problem with. And we saw this during the Trump campaign, like that last ad where he showed a series of faces that he talked about pushing an international banking conspiracy to destroy U.S. sovereignty. And funny enough, they were all Jews individuals who had nothing to do with one another. And then sometimes we see this coming from the left as well, where they, you know, they blame the quote unquote neocons for pushing the country to war. And they don't mention Donald Rumsfeld. They don't mention uh, Dick Cheney or Condi Rice. They only mention the Jews like this newspaper columnist or this person at a think tank or this, you know, junior person at the defense department, as if somehow there was a conspiracy of Jews pushing the country to war. So anti-Semitism can be subtle, but it often is rooted in a conspiratorial belief that there are Jews somehow plotting to take over the world or to sow unrest or to seek special status for themselves. I think it's incumbent upon us to realize that racism isn't just your problem, DeRay, as a black man. It's my problem as an American Jew. And anti-Semitism is just my problem as an American Jew. It's your problem as well as a, as a black man. We can't have justice in this country unless there's justice for everyone. And intolerance is our shared, shared enemy. We've got to do everything we can to fight it. Now, what, what can we do about it? What well, can the Anti-Defamation League do about it? What can, what can regular people or sort of people not in organizations, everyday citizens, what can they do about it? I think there, uh, let me talk, it's a good question. What can we do about it? So let me first break that down what the ADL is doing about it and then what individuals can do about it. What the ADL can do about it? Well, we have this network of 26 offices, like I said. We have educational programming. We have law enforcement training. We have free speech experts. So one of the things that we did immediately after Charlottesville is we partnered with the U.S. Conference of Mayors because we know there are more rallies being planned. We know that white supremacists are recruiting on college campuses. We know that they are, they are increasing, expanding their efforts on social media. So we reached out to the U.S. Conference of Mayors and said, let us help your other mayors get ready and prepare themselves proactively so we don't have another repeat of the debacle that we saw in Charlottesville. Together with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, we launched the Mayor's Compact. You can see it at mayorscompact.org. A 
10-point plan that mayors can adopt to inoculate their communities from intolerance. It's a series of concrete steps they can take in advance in order to reduce the risk of, again, the kind of racism that was on full display in Charlottesville. It includes things like making sure your law enforcement is ready, that your schools are ready, that you're ready to step up. DeRay, literally, we pulled this together in the aftermath of Charlottesville. Today, we have over 350 mayors who've signed up. These are all the big city mayors. These are small town mayors. These are Republicans. These are Democrats. These are blue states. These are red states. All over the country, mayors are saying, enough. So I'm pleased about that. And now we're following up to make sure that every community in this country is immunized against intolerance. Now, I think other things people can do is you can volunteer. You can get involved. Organizations, not just like ADL, NAACP, Unidos, HRC, SPLC, ACLU. There are a number of great organizations working to make an impact on these issues. So people can get involved, whether that means signing an online petition or showing up to lick envelopes. And what about what about cyber hate? You know, the Internet has become a place that is beautiful for letting people express their views in ways that they've not been able to do before. But it also has become a place for people are being hateful in ways that we've not seen happen before. Like the mechanism just didn't exist. What can what can we do about that? What can the ADL do about that or is doing about that? I'm really that? glad you asked about that because this is a big, I mean, the front line in the fight against hate is on Facebook. And we have certainly seen extremists exploit these platforms. They've innovated their approach to spread their message and again, to target and terrorize minorities. And frankly, the technology is developing so quickly. Washington hasn't caught up. I think even the companies themselves have failed to grasp the extent of the problem. But that's changed in the last year. You know, we at the ADL, uh, I announced at South by Southwest earlier this year, we're launching a center for technology and society in Silicon Valley. We're going to have a dedicated physical presence in the epicenter of innovation that's focused specifically on creating partnerships with the companies not just to push back in terms of policy and making sure, for example, you know, their terms of use forbid the kind of, again, slander and, and, and abuse that we're talking about, but also we just launched a problem-solving lab. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Twitter joined forces with the ADL to create the lab, which is developing product-based and engineering approaches to address online abuse and to reduce cyber hate. Now, the ADL is also doing work around sports. What is that work? I'm really proud of that. So, you know, we were, uh, I was reached out to by folks from the NBA and the NFL after the president's, you know, ridiculousness. Um, I mean, we're really in a moment when the president equivocates on neo-Nazis and prefers to tweet at NFL players who are exercising their First Amendment rights. It's really quite a moment in time. So they reached out to us and we had been planning on doing something. And then we announced the creation of a sports leadership council because we think that sports should be a way to unite the country, not to divide us. And we think that sports offers opportunities, whether it's on the court, you know, or in the locker room where athletes, you know, men and women, boys and girls come together as equals, not as, you know, people of difference. 
And so we launched the Sports Leadership Council to use sports as a strategy, again, to convene communities and to push back on prejudice. We announced this with our initial members include Billie Jean King, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Ronnie Lott, the Hall of Famer with the 49ers, as well as owners from the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball. Um, And the plan is, much as we're working now through city halls around the country, to work through amateur and professional sports teams and organizations to use them as platforms to address issues of diversity and to use them proactively, again, to push back on prejudice. So we'll be rolling out a range of different programs across the country at the high school, college, and professional level in all sports to engage in the kind of conversations that I think the country is ready to have. So more to come on that in the next couple months. And, and what's the work that you do in schools? I know that you talked about training uh, yeah. teachers, but what does that look like? What, what is, what's the scope? I think that that is, when I learned about it, I was, I was surprised. I didn't know that was work that ADL did, but I'd love yeah. to know more about that. Sure. So again, as I mentioned earlier, decades ago, the ADL realized you can't like litigate or, or arrest your way out of intolerance. You got to change hearts and minds. So we've developed a series of two main product lines, if you will, a program called No Place for Hate and another called A World of Difference. And these educational programs are distributed at the uh, local level to elementary, middle, and high schools. And it's based on a model where kids train other kids and kids take leadership roles. So it's about leadership development of students where they tackle issues of difference. So these are universal values. And they tackle issues like homophobia, racism, Islamophobia, uh, uh, anti-Semitism, you know, anti-immigration sentiment. I think the misogyny. And these can be, some of the programs happen at the classroom level. Some happen at the school-wide level through assemblies and not. But it's all about engaging kids to take a leadership role and train other kids on why tolerance is important. I'm expanding that work now. And programs like the the Sports Leadership Council and the Mayor's Compact will help to get our content in front of more kids because that's where we think change really happens. Got it. Well, thanks for coming on Pod Save the People today. We consider you a friend of the pod and we hope to have you back soon. I'm grateful for that. Keep up the good work. Well... That's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Make sure that you share it. Make sure that you rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I will see you back next week. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.